All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. I'm joined by the indubitable Mr. Mark Yusko. Mark, welcome to the show, my friend. Indubitable. We'll see how we'll see how nimble I am as I have to do the I have to do the climb right for the soccer reveal. So I have the original, you know, Bitcoin logo from Satoshi himself, and then he modified it from the BC to the B, and then BitBoy came along and gave us the the one we have today. So a little history lesson on the uh, the logo. Mark, has your wife ever watched this show? I am getting nervous for you. For, for those who are not following along on video, Mark just stood on one foot on a chair that's rotating. So he's got yeah. one foot, he's rotating in midair. I yeah. applaud you, my friend. I applaud well, you. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. It's funny you say that because this morning I was thinking, because I am in the office today instead of at home, uh, since we're doing this on Thursday instead of Friday. Mm. And um, it's funny you say that because I was thinking, you know, it is kind of a wobbly chair. And what would happen like if – if we were all like live and I fell and like hit my head and he'd be like, Mark, Mark, you know, Mark. call Pam. It'd be 911. <laughs> but I survived. So it's, it's good. We're all good. Excellent. All right. Uh, well, maybe you've got a, a second or third career in you as a gymnast. Um, we shall see. Yeah. But, uh, or yeah. circus performer. Maybe. I think so too. I think so. Um, all right. Let's, uh, we, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. I want to get your, your thoughts on the FOMC that we just had. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share my screen here. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, just the Fed, uh, first of all, a shout out, congratulations to my colleague, Jack Farley, who does not need to eat grass uh, live on his podcast because he said that he would eat grass, quote unquote, if we didn't get 75 basis point hike. We got the 75 basis point hike. Congratulations, Jack. Although honestly, I think grass would be pretty healthy. So maybe you'll still decide to do it for yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? Um, but now we've got a Fed funds that's sitting Cows at three. Cows love it, right? They do. They do. They seem they seem happy, you know. So who knows? Maybe they know something we don't. But uh, we got Fed funds at three point two five percent. And on the right here, you're seeing just a whole bunch of different, uh, you know, FOMC economic predictions, right? Going 2022, 2023, 2024. This is GDP, unemployment rate, PCE, inflation. Uh, and then we've got core PCE inflation, which we know that the Fed, uh, the Fed likes to take a look at. Basically, what they're predicting here to sum everything up is as they're raising rates, obviously, and they're predicting lower GDP, so slowing growth, and they're predicting higher unemployment and higher inflation compared to what it was in June. Not a super pretty picture. What? For, I'll just pause there. Do you have any takeaways from the FOMC or what Powell said? Look, um, yeah, it's it's confounding. There, mm-hmm. There's no other, there's no other word for it in the sense of like what, what's the mission? Okay, so the stated mission of the FOMC is price stability and and full employment, right? So, okay, um, kind of <laughs> failed on the price stability part mm. pretty clearly. Um, the full employment, yeah, we'll, we'll give them credit for it. Although, yeah. as we've talked about, a lot of it is is BLS, as I say, it's the uh, the birth death stuff. But yeah. But that said, um, it's it's fine. I, I again, I I don't think that is their mandate, right? I think their mandate is to enrich the bankers and and keep the banks profitable. And I think I think what what we're seeing is they actually can raise the mission accomplished banner. On, on that. Now it took them 13 years, uh, but you know, post global financial crisis, I mean, right after the global financial crisis, the banks were done. I mean, they were, they were, they were bankrupt. 
and completely and totally bankrupt. And some countries like Iceland said, yeah, we're going to shut them down, but not here, right? Because too many bankers' friends were in powerful positions at Treasury and others, and they handed them, you know, Hank Paulson handed out billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. So no one had to go bankrupt. And then they cut rates to zero. And we've talked about this over and over. The, the banks are the ones that borrow at zero. Hmm. I don't know anybody who has a zero interest rate loan. I mean, I, I really don't. I, I don't know anybody. In fact, I, I think you showed me the chart a few weeks ago of the, maybe was, I can't remember, but this crazy chart of the average car loan interest rate hmm. is double hmm. digits. And yeah. most people say, oh, zero interest. Yeah. yeah, that's for the like handful of people who have good credit. The average person doesn't really have good credit and they're paying as high as 29%. It's capped, you know, at, at, at the usurious rate of 29%. So, and now car loans go eight years and it's like, it's just like a rental payment. So uh, that's a long-winded way of saying, I am struggling because... If, if the goal was to, to you know, kind of reinflate bank balance sheets, they, they did that. Now they want to put interest rates back to a level where they feel like um, they're neutral, right? That's, that's the whole thing is they want to be at a neutral policy. But, but here's the thing. Um, interest rates have historically been roughly equivalent to nominal GDP growth. And nominal GDP growth has fallen off a cliff. So we're way out of whack on that measure. And the more they crank on the lever, the worse that, you know, in the right-hand chart, the, the, the number on the left is going to get. And this idea that somehow we're going to have some magic recovery in Q3 or Q4 or into next year is, is ludicrous. I don't know if you've seen the chart, I'll send it to you later, of mm. earnings forecast finally starting to go down Come down yeah and you know it's look hope springs eternal you know mm -hmm. earnings as i love it. wall street analysts only job i think maybe in the world where you can on average be right four times out of ten and make a million dollars a year i mean look i flip a coin and be right five times out of ten um but that that's just crazy and so they're finally having to say like my wrestling coach, where the head goes, the body follows. And if GDP is going down, earnings are going down. And uh, I think it's I think it's pretty ugly. You know, you saw the yen uh, intervention this morning. That that's that's big news. And I think that's the central bankers jousting with each other. You know, Jay Powell's like, uh, all right, I'm I'm going to crank up rates, and so the yen is going to scream downwards. And the Bank of Japan's like, whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. So they had to intervene, but they're going to run out of reserves. And you know, I think 150 is a shoe in for the yen dollar. And yeah, I remember this is back a few years, but I remember we had John Malden at a conference in New York. So that's probably five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, Abe San was in. He was talking about weakening the yen and. And John was like, oh, we're definitely going to 175 and eventually we're going to 250. And everybody's like, okay, John, you have totally lost it. You know, directionally, he was exactly right. Maybe it's taken a little longer, but, you know, 141 this morning, I mean, that's a huge move from the beginning of the year.
huge. Yeah. I mean, the and, and it doesn't look like, right, the market is, there, you know, I, a couple months ago, you know, there were some very smart people that I thought were debating something that was interesting, which is, is the bond market pricing things in and is the Fed basically reacting and trying to make yeah. the market seem like, uh, trying to make it seem like they are in control, but really they're just following the market or are they moving yeah. the market? And I, I think, I think, you know, just watching how things have played out, I think that the Fed has an enormous amount of control and they are they are effectively moving this. The dollar, you know, I mean, and, and it doesn't look like they're going to stop, right? I think the market's expectations are finally kind of more moving towards what the dot plot says and what the Fed says. And the market is believing the Fed that they are going to hike pretty aggressively towards the end of the year. I mean, this this chart on the right, this tells you that the market is now pricing in another 115 basis points in, you know, by the end of the year, which would bring Fed funds up to 440, right? And you can see- yeah. And like we keep showing this chart, I feel like week over week over week, and there's a there's a blue line, right? Uh, versus oh, a purple line. So I guess it's slightly going down. But I mean, we're we're still basically pricing in, uh, you know, a, a federal funds rate of just under four fifty, right? Uh, in, the, yeah. in the beginning Which, of next year. Again, if you if you said that out loud a decade ago, people would have laughed at you, saying, "There's no way it could get that low." Right. I mean, look at the left hand side of the chart. Right. We're yeah. talking seven, yeah. six, right. Four and mm -hmm. a half is not high. Mm -hmm. And this is part of the, the, the struggle with all of this is is we were at zero for so long. Right. We were at this emergency level of, of financial accommodation for so long the people actually started to believe it. Like I saw somebody this morning yeah. saying, you know, the cloud companies average multiple of sales is down to 5.5. You know, it hadn't been that low since 2011. I'm like, are, are you joking? Five times sales, right? Yeah. Companies don't sell in normal circumstances at five, eight, 10 times sales, right? They, they just don't. Mm -hmm. They sell at one and a half or two times sales. And We've we've deluded ourselves through money illusion uh, that that this is normal that that mm. these low rates are normal and so now the world is freaking out as we go from emergency level to to normalized levels and four and a half is low relative to history I mean yeah. and and here's the you know I, I talk about this a lot right which is Low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness, right? High interest rates are a sign of economic strength. Now, to your point, is the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail? Mm -hmm. You can't just declare strength. I mean, the White House has been doing it for, for months. This is the strongest <laughs> economy in history. Yeah. Like, are, are you joking? Mm. I mean, we're the manufacturing hub of the world, not China. Like, can can you show me any data, like anything? Show me mm -hmm. one piece of data that would support that statement. There, there isn't any. And so by saying, oh, rates are high, so, so life is good. We don't have a recession. And there was another great one this morning, uh, one year ago. I wish I, I wish I could find it, but I can't, I'm not gonna find it. One year ago, the Fed said, zero chance of recession. Inflation is transitory. There won't be any inflation. 
Uh, we don't see any chance of raising rates anytime soon. Yeah. Anytime soon was the air quotes. That was one year ago. Mm. Now he's, and it's, 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 he, he really is like, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, Jay the Dove is gone, right? It's like Two-Face. I mean, I'm Jay the Dove. No, I'm Jerome the Hawk. And he is, he is totally hawk on. And that uh, investing.com cartoon I said about, you know, the Hawks, they are descending and uh, he's playing Alfred Hitchcock and he's like, you know, I, I don't care if the, the lady gets her eyes pecked out by the birds. I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to take, I mean, one of the mistakes maybe that, that people made, if you rewind the clock back to whenever the Fed finally did pivot away from their stance on transitory and say, we actually do see, you know, we were yeah. wrong about transitory. That was what November or December of last year. It has November, been a, November, right? That yeah, was the peak. Yeah, it has been a steady march down. And the irony was that people didn't really believe the Fed at that point. But basically, as soon as the Fed said that, they declared their intent. You know, you, what you should have taken that as a sign that one, they're going to try to withdraw liquidity from the market. Two, they're going to hike rates. They basically did signal that they were going to do that. I mean, if, if my takeaway from listening to Jerome Powell talk yesterday was, I mean, he came right out of the gate, right? I tweeted it. He said price stability probably five times in the first 30 seconds, right, of the FOMC. Very, very declarative language. And he did finger the tight labor market um, as something that he wants to fix as a, as a perpetrator of, of, of high wages and inflation. So, it, Which is so disingenuous and so wrong, right? Mm. The labor component of, of inflation, it's tiny relative to what we've talked about, oil prices, used cars, et cetera. Yeah. Can, can you walk me through? I, I actually have a, I was having this debate with some, some people from BlockWorks earlier today. I actually, uh, okay, if, if you take the, the idea that one person's costs are another person's income, right. then yes. how can, then how can costs outprice people's wage growth? Do you, do you follow me? Like if, if prices are going up, if costs for one group of people are going up, doesn't that necessarily get balanced out by an increase in income for another group of people? So when people talk about people's real purchasing power getting eroded, isn't it more just a rebalancing or a reshifting of purchasing power? Amongst ah, group of people? Again, like, this, this, is, this is the question, right? It depends on mm. whether companies have pricing power, right? Mm. If, if you have no pricing power, because there's no excess demand and costs rise, your profits go down and incomes actually go down, not up. Mm. Right. Mm. And so, and this is my big thing about why we're not in the seventies. There is no excess demand for anything. Mm. Right. There are not, you know, we're not taking more airplane flights. We're not taking more cruises. We're not buying more stuff. Now part of it is because you can't get the stuff. Like I, I would actually, like to upgrade my car. I mean, same car. I want to get the same car, but I want to get a new version of my five-year-old car. Can't get one. Literally. There are no Kia Niro's to be had in the United States. There are three. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to fly to Hawaii and pick it up and put it on a ship and, and bring it back here. And uh, so it, it is, I believe, I 100% agree with your point. And I talk about this with student loans, right? You're forgiving somebody's debt, but that's someone else's asset. That's a bad thing. 
And then the government says, oh, but we got that debt. We already bought the debt back and we're the sponsor, so it's just us. Well, right, but then you've got to tax someone to get that money. Well, no, we don't. We can just mm. print it because we're Keltonite. You know, we're in the cult of Kelton. So, but all of this to me just leads to what we have, right? We have a devaluation of currency. And that devaluation of currency is why everybody is feeling poorer. And so you're not mm. seeing that concomitant rise in incomes because you go to the grocery store and 20 bucks doesn't buy you anything. And I measure no. it, I measure it, and although I don't use cash anymore, um, but I used to measure it by ATM. You know, when I was growing up, first ATMs came out, you know, 20 bucks and get you through a week, easy. Then it went to 50 bucks. Last time I went to the ATM, I took out 300 bucks and it was gone like, like that. Um, so I, I just think we remember prices being normal when we're young, even though they're just relative to your point, they're just relative to incomes. 1971, this great chart that I just tweeted out the other day. 1971, average house cost 25 grand, average car was 3,500, rent was 150 bucks a month, you know, a dozen eggs was 45 cents, gallon of milk was a buck, um, but the average income was $10,250. But here's the rub. Today, average income's up to 54,000, okay? Big move, but the average house price is closer to 350. So you've had a bigger increase it's north of four. in the stuff. North of four. It's north like 420. North of four. Okay. All right, 420. Yeah. So, so it's even worse. And so wages, particularly for the bottom half, wages, the top 10%, awesome. I mean, off the charts, higher. Wages at the bottom, actually, the average, the, meet, the middle, in real terms, is unchanged since the late 70s. That's a frightening stat. That is a frightening stat. And for the bottom yeah. part, wages are actually down in real terms. Like one of the ways that I've heard this described best, right, is uh, the way Lynn Alden describes inflation, which is inflation benefits creditors, not debtors, right? Because one of the oh, yeah. like debt is denominated obviously in nominal terms, right? So when mm -hmm prices and, and wages kind of go up, then your debt relative to your income is very beneficial. So, I mean, it feels even weird saying this because, I mean, the, the narrative around inflation is very much, and I, I, I still just haven't been able to figure this out for myself. And I, I feel like I see a lot of conflicting data no, on this, part which of is plan. basically- Michael, it, mm. it is the plan, right? Who is the mm. Who are the largest debtors in the world? I mean, who, who, who are the greatest- people in oh, debt, the Western countries. the U.S. government. Yeah, right. U.S. government, yeah. right? The, the countries yeah. themselves. So what yeah. do you have to do? You have to yeah. generate inflation. And the problem is at some point it stops working. And that's what Japan's mm. faced with right now, right? They've been trying to generate inflation for decades. Mm. I mean, think about this, right? They've they had super high inflation, right? Remember Japanese real estate prices, the land under the palace was worth more than San Francisco or New York or whatever it was. And, and then it all crashed. 
and it crashed. Yeah. And then demographically, it got ugly. And what did they do? They started to print. In fact, if you look at our M2 growth, we look like amateurs compared to the Japanese. <laughs> I mean, Japanese M2 yeah. growth, I mean, it's literally a parabolic curve. And, mm. and yet, no inflation, no high interest rates. Now, the quality of life is still pretty good, right? You go to downtown Tokyo and the restaurants are nice and the hotels are nice. I mean, kind of weird, kind of funky 1950s feel to me and too many people smoking, but, but it, it isn't like a depression, but they've been in no way, shape or form able to generate any inflation. So what do they do? They just buy their own debt. So they are buying up all the debt. Now we're trying because we, we, we can't buy all our debt because there's just too much of it. And since the Chinese are selling it and the Russians are selling it, you know, Chinese have been net sellers of our debt since I think, what, 2014, something like that. Um, we have this problem that we have to try to inflate it away. So this whole thing about price stability, price stability, it's Shakespeare. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. If you have to tell me over and over and over again that you're worried about inflation, you're not worried about inflation. You like inflation. There's a uh, Rudy Havenstein. Uh, he's a great Twitter account. He um, he has the he's, he's been the tweeting uh, you know these he's quotes the these quotes from Yellen. Uh, you know, low inflation, one of the great problems of our time. <laughs> it's like, oh man, did that ever not age well? Uh, to your point about you know, the Japanese oh, yeah. will never well. have a financial crisis in my lifetime. I mean, Janet Yellen subprime is be, contained. Yeah. Subprime. She might be the greatest contrarian indicator. I mean, other than like, you know, magazine covers or, mm. you know, like the, the headline, I guess there was the headline today in the, in the wall street journal, that gold has lost its safe haven status. Now, why would you print that Michael? Why, why, why would the editors of the Wall Street Journal print that headline across the top of the Wall Street Journal? Well, I mean, it's certainly in the U.S. government's interest for that to be the case. So why? Why? Okay, pull that thread. Big, Beautiful. Well, Genius. I mean, well, well, the reason why is because they they want the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is the reserve currency of the world, and that's the way our I think our political system is enact like basically ruin we were actively trying to ruin the network effects of our own currency so you know portraying this idea that gold isn't actually safe well theoretically i guess if people believe that it'll push more people towards buying treasuries oh my god there are five people in the world who would answer that question and you are one of that is amazing michael that is that is truly Appreciate it. dazzling no that no seriously i could ask that people i could ask that question to 100 people and not five of them would get it right and that is exactly, exactly why they're doing it. It's exactly why JP Morgan spoofs the price of gold every single day. And they will get fined another billion dollars this year. And they will say, so what? We make $20 billion spoofing the price of gold. And it furthers our national interest because we are trying to discourage people from owning gold and get them instead to buy treasuries because the largest buyers of treasuries historically have told us to F off. That is so misunderstood and so, you are a genius. I love doing this with you. I, I, and we I did not rehearse this. We did not rehearse this. That was no, no, a no, live question that you had no idea it was coming. 
And you did the analysis that I said, 95 people out of 100 would no way do that analysis. No way. I um, You know what else? Some I, I heard this line from uh, Joseph Wang. Uh, he, you know, it was a Fed guy on Twitter, a former trader at the at the Fed. And if you look at banking reg- regulation that got enacted post Great Financial Crisis, Basel, you know, Basel two, Basel three, whatever they're yeah. on right now, basically it was it's an attempt ostensibly right to limit the amount of risks that banks can take after their little the little foo foo back in uh, back in two thousand eight. And one way you could read that is, oh, that's a good. Well, what are the safest assets that you want to buy? Treasuries, of course. Uh, another way that you could read that exact same thing is if you were a government and your aim was to get people to essentially continue to buy your currency in, you know, ad infinitum, you bake it right there into the regulations. Well, obviously, this is the safest stuff that you should want to buy and own. Let's let's put it in the regulation. It's just an interesting alternative way that you could no, potentially it's, read it's that. No, it's so beautiful. Because and it's and it's punctuated by um, Jamie Dimon uh, at the hearings the other day. So yeah. first you got this crazy woman. I mean, <laughs> the idiocy. I mean, complete idiocy of saying that banks should not fund or finance fossil fuels, and that and, and she would actually she actually said out loud, "We need to have zero new production of fossil fuels." And I, I just want to say, those glasses you're wearing. Those produced with fossil fuels. Did you get to work today in in something that was produced with fossil fuels? How about that chair you're sitting in, or the electricity used to power that microphone that you're blathering into like an idiot? And Jamie was awesome. He said, he said, uh, um, no, that would be a road to hell. <laughs> like, of course we're going to finance fossil fuels. But then he went on because I asked him another question about about uh, crypto. And, and he said, well, you know, blockchain. Yeah, definitely. I should have my blockchain, not Bitcoin socks on, uh, or Bitcoin, not blockchain socks on. Um, blockchain, definitely. But, you know, these, these things that you call currencies, these tokens, you know, just a Ponzi scheme. And, you know, but we- Decentralized Ponzi scheme. Decentralized Ponzi scheme. But, but we- Can you even have, have a decentralized have, Ponzi have JP scheme? JP Morgan code. Is it- no, no, you can't. You you can't. Isn't but that an oxymoron? It's an oxymoron, <laughs> right? I mean, but again, it's an intentional oxymoron because he has authorized within his own organization a very large group that not only trades this decentralized Ponzi scheme that he hates so much, but also is now recommending to their clients, like literally in, in JP Morgan Wealth Management, it is a recommendation that you should own some and they have a price target with, you know, six digits. So it, it's all theater. But but what I love, what I loved about it was he said, well, but but, but we, we have JP Morgan coin. Mm. Yeah. And so you should use that. And I think we've talked about um, Mr. Robot before, which if you haven't seen it, you should definitely watch it. I said I'd be a lot Pretty wealthier had I watched it in real time. I mean, it's it's gross. I mean, it's it's horrific and it's hard to watch sometimes the violence and the drugs, but but the writing is phenomenal. The story is phenomenal, and the links to Evil Corp, which is J.P. Morgan. I mean, clearly, and you know, Evil Coin, 
which is JP Morgan coin, and Bitcoin, which is actually in there, is, is staggering. And it, it was written in real time in 2016 uh, when all this stuff was happening. And it's, it's, just, it's just brilliant, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I want I want to I want to get to uh, because I, I want to get your your take on the stablecoin legislation, the proposed stablecoin legislation that has just become public this past week, because I think that direct ties to kind of what we're talking about. Before we do, though, yeah. I want to get your take on the rising dollar, because one, you know, who's looking pretty smart right about now is Brent Johnson and his dollar milkshake theory. Uh, but whatever it is, mm-hmm. right, the, whatever the reason why, right, the dollar has, it's a, been a precipitous rise up. So right, we're recording this on the 22nd, that's Thursday, the dollar is sitting above 111. And more importantly than just the level of where it's sitting, which is multi-decade highs, right? But we're talking about almost historic highs, right? Back in 2000 or, so, or around that, that was the last, I think the all-time high, or maybe it was in the late 90s, was the, you know, around over 120. But we're getting right up there, but it's also, it's the pace, it's the rate of change, right? It's been a very rapid rise. So for me, you know, I'm kind of watching that and thinking that's got to be enormous pressure on our allies, right? That's got to be enormous pressure on Japan and on Europe. And typically when the dollar does something like this, that's when we get a sort of controlled devaluing of the dollar, right? You get your Plaza Accord type agreement. So I'd be curious, I mean, how much should people be watching the rise of the dollar? And could that actually be the pressure point that makes the Fed take its foot off the gas a little bit and start talking a little less tough? Well, again, I, I, so yes, yeah. And, and we've mm. talked about this over and over, is I still will argue that it's not dollar strength, it's other currency weakness, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's the yen being absolutely destroyed and the euro being eviscerated. And, Mm. you know, here's the interesting thing, right? The only way you survive if you're an exporting country is you have a weak currency. So the the yen, I mean, I'm sorry, the the euro, perfect sense, right? They, They want the euro to be as low as possible. They'll jawbone about how they want it higher, baloney. The lower the euro, the more machine tools and cars uh, Germany can sell. The yen, on the other hand, is problematic, right? Because they're an importing country. They have to import stuff. And so you actually want a, a stronger, stronger currency. And I, I think one of, the, one of the challenges for the United States is this change in the nature of import versus export because of oil, right? When we were a big importer of oil, strong dollar was great because we were putting dollars out into the ecosystem and, you know, that was fantastic. Now we got the the reverse problem. We're selling oil. And if it's priced in dollars, uh, that's, People have to come up with dollars, which is what's putting pressure on these these foreign countries. Um, but but ultimately, it, it's it's anathema to any of our businesses that are trying to export. I mean, it, it's just brutal, and that's why earnings I think are just going to be disastrous. Yeah, I would agree with you there. All right, I want to get your take on stable coins 
um, the stablecoin proposed legislation. So let me just pull up. Um, I've got some notes here to kind of run through. But basically, we started to hear about uh, the background is U.S. lawmakers are reportedly drafting a House stablecoin bill that would place a two-year ban on endogenously collateralized stablecoins, a.k.a algorithmic stablecoins. It also mandates uh, a study on Terra-like tokens from the Treasury in consultation with the Fed, the OCC, and the FDIC, and the SEC. I'm, I'm a little curious about why the SEC, but that's a whole that's a whole other issue. I don't, don't yeah. understand why this would be under their purview. Um, it also, there was, there was important guidance for how fiat-backed stablecoins should be regulated. Basically, it would allow both banks and non-banks to issue stablecoins. However, Bank issuers need approval from federal regulators like the OCC and non-bank issuers. It directs the Federal Reserve to establish the process for making application decisions. So this would be the f- first bill that kind of indirectly or directly targets actually the $153 billion stablecoin industry as it exists today. Curious to get your take. Uh, look, regulation is what incumbents use to slow down disruptive innovation. Um, that's all this is. And, you know, again, that was one of the things Jamie was talking about is, oh, you know, properly regulated, properly, properly regulated cryptocurrencies, stable coins could, could be good. What that means is us, we, we get first dibs and, you know, the incumbents don't like the fact that money is le- for fiat is leaving the banking system, converting to stable coins or other cryptocurrencies and living in this, this other ecosystem. And so, uh, you know, when it was a couple billion dollars, no big deal. Tens of billions, yeah, no big deal. Hundreds of billions, now, now it's a problem. Um, because our banking system, even though it is better, it's still not awesome in terms of, of health. Uh, so it's better, it's, it's better enough that you can can raise rates, which they are uh, off zero. But um, I think this is no more than an attempt, misguided, ill-guided, whatever you want to call it, attempt to delay the inevitable, which is the transition of the financial system from ancient technology, 60-year-old technology, to the new technology. And the banks could participate if they so choose, but they won't, right? The, the Well, history says the incumbents choose not to change because they, they're afraid of giving up their gravy train that, you know, they've worked hard to, to create. Yeah, I would, I mean, I completely, that's the lens that I kind of look at it through as well, because, you know, for me, it just, it's hard to not look at this as such an own goal from the U.S. because yeah. the U.S. Perfect. You know, at a time, at a, at a time when just ironically, dollar weakness. Even though the, this is a non-consensus opinion, and I understand that, but my view on the dollar is right now, it is the reserve currency, and it appears very strong. Historically, reserve currencies tend not to last. There's about an eighty to one hundred year window. We are already we are nearing, we're bumping up the historical against the historical norm of how long reserve currencies last. Yep. As we abuse power internationally and use sanctions as a tool, we are aggressively eroding the network effect right, of our currency at the same time where our GDP relative to world GDP is going down. To me, these all say dollar weakness in the long term, if not the next two years. But at the same time that's happening, the US basically has this 
jewel just dropped right into their lap where if you consider, like I do, crypto as being the next uh, iteration of financial infrastructure that's going to power the world, it naturally wants to use the dollar. It is like, it's this unbelievable gift. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is not shoot it in the face. That's the only thing that they have to do. And they might not do that. They might not do it. And it is just, yeah, it's an enormous... It's, I would just, it would just be, a, it would just be a damn shame. As you know, I don't know to, to play on, on, on the analogy in a bad way. Right. Mm. You put a gun in Dick Cheney's hand, he, he's going to shoot you in the face. Right. He doesn't, he doesn't really <laughs> want to shoot you in the face. He's just, just going to do it. And mm. it's just his nature. Right. It's, mm. it's like, like I say about fangs, right. <laughs> Inappropriately named because fangs bite, right. Snakes will bite you. A dog with fangs will bite you. I mean, that that is their nature. And it may not happen for a long time, but man, when it does, pain. And I I I think even the dollar milkshake, right? Even Brent would say that it was the one last cathartic spike in the dollar before the yeah. system collapsed. Right? That, that was a long term dollar bear. That yeah. that it was yeah, I hear the arguments and you got Raul's, you know, uh, hurricane cloud from the end game that he published. Uh, they got a lot of reads and all this stuff, but, but we're not going to have an end game right away mm. because there's too many vested interests that don't want that to happen. So what happens is exactly what we're seeing is this kind of last cathartic squeeze of, of trying to make us the, the hegemonic, you know, reserve and what happens? Okay, we squeeze so tight that poof, Russia pops out of this hand and China pops out of this hand. And what do they do? They get together and now they're denominating transactions not in dollars, in renminbi and, and rubles. And mm. we did sanctions against Russia to crush their economy and crush the, the ruble. The ruble went up and their economy is actually killing it because. They're selling lots of oil and gas at, at significantly higher prices than, you know. So I, I, I just, I find, I find the weaponization of anything, maybe just axiomatically, right? The weaponization of things is bad, right? You mm-hmm. weaponize a flu virus and it's bad. You weaponize a currency and it's bad. You weaponize weapons, you know, bad. Um, Largely bad. Yeah, weaponized climate, right? Which is what they're doing now. Like they're, they, she, yeah. this woman, right, was trying to weaponize this opinion, and that's all it is, and it's opinion that somehow having a goal of zero carbon emissions is good. There's lots of debate on that, but but just that opinion now is being weaponized to change behaviors. But here's the, you know, there's a great line. Um, I think Musk, again, I'm going to piss off all the, the Tesla groupies. Um, Musk was saying that, you know, well, of course, internal combustion engines should be banned because every car should be electric. I'm like, huh. If it's a really good idea, do you need to really legislate the competition away? In anything, right? If, if your idea is so good, then it should naturally displace the bad idea, right? You shouldn't have to legislate. It's like if the XL pipeline was a bad idea, 
then you probably wouldn't have to legislate it away and prevent mm. it from happening. But but I think there are examples where the free market isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily solve societal problems. Like I, th- th- some of this gets into like long and short term decision making. And and actually, Vitalik wrote a really great post. He wrote it about DAO governance, but there are kind of like type one and type two organizations, whereas type one organizations are sovereign type organizations, type two are more corporate organizations, corporate organizations, they're geared towards efficiently solving things, whereas type one organizations, there are other considerations, uh, like the appearance of neutrality, like credible neutrality, stuff like that. But I want to before because I want to I want to get your opinion on uh, one thing before we we go, which is and I want to give a shout out to Ben Hunt, who recently came on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Epsilon theory, every time I read, I don't read it probably as regularly as I should. But every time I read it, I'm like, God, damn, Ben, you just really nailed it. And uh, the pop culture references, he does pop culture like no one else. He wrote a piece called The Widening Gyre recently. This is a reference to a, um, a poem. Uh, and you know that that also encompasses the phrase that the center cannot hold. But it's like in, inspired by World War One or World War Two, I forget. But uh, basically, he had this, it, the observation was, the polemicism, the intense degree of America being divided. So the, there are these two stats that I want to show you. Supporters of both Trump and Biden were polled. And it's like 80% of Biden supporters and 77% of Trump supporters say that the other side, the other political party, does not share core American values with them. 77 and 80% on both sides. And this chart, this visual chart actually was this said it all. This was like a light bulb moment that went on in my head. So mm-hmm. if you're if you're following Long Just Value Audio, we're looking at three different periods, 1994, 2004, and 2017. We're looking at this two, uh, basically, there's like a mound of blue, which is median Democrat um, political values and sentiment around them. And then the red is Republicans. You can see them moving apart. Uh, and then the purple is basically the think about it like a Venn diagram, right? So there's like a blue part of the Venn diagram, a red part of the Venn diagram, and then a purple part in the middle. What's point what Ben points out in his writing is that the purple part in the middle was much larger in 1994, much smaller in 2017. You would probably intuit that, right? You'd think, yeah, it feels like the country's moving further apart. Mm-hmm. But the observation that he made, and this is why it was a light bulb moment for me is you can no longer get elected. Imagine you are a politician. You are trying to Mm -hmm. figure out a target market to market your message to. In 1994, the target market that made sense was the purple part of the graph because that was larger than either the purely blue part or the purely red part. Now, if you go to 2017, the largest markets are either purely blue or purely red, but the purple part in the middle is smaller, which means there's a reason why, by the way, BlockWorks, this is a little inside baseball for BlockWorks. We have a BlockWorks macro channel and a, and a crypto channels. And the reason why is initially we were like, well, I bet there's a bunch of people that actually like macro content and crypto content. I like macro content and I like crypto content. I thought it should go together. But it turns out mm-hmm. the audience for macro alone is probably an order of magnitude larger than macro plus crypto. Because Mm -hmm. many people who are macro connoisseurs get actively turned off by the crypto content and vice versa. So when you try to bring two big audiences together, it's actually smaller. So if you take that same analogy and apply it to politics, this is why you don't hear anyone talking to the middle anymore, because there's no market for that. The market for purely 
uh, uh, liberal values or purely conservative values is larger now than the market for people who want to hear like one, both sides one, of it. One correction and, and, and modification. Um, the reason you, you hear what you describe more is that there's no movement to purple, right? There's a reason that Prince, mm. you know, great musician, always wore purple, right? Because the, the king of, you know, the color of kings and the color of, of neutrality. Um, I'm just kidding around. But, but the, the, the reality is you, you always got elected on the sides. You never got mm. elected in the middle. No centrist mm. ever gets elected. Not ever, right? From Herbert Hoover, right, who started the white fright uh, movement back in, in the 30s, to Bill Clinton in 1992, did not get elected, right, in the middle. Okay. Ronald Reagan in the 80s did not get elected in the middle. Okay. Reagan went way out right. Clinton went way out left. And what they do? They came in the middle. And in mm. the middle, so the election, short, ruling long, eight, eight year presidencies. So you didn't hear about the fringes because they governed from the middle. Now the problem because of social media is the purple's been dissipated. And so now you gotta, you gotta run on the fringes, but then you gotta stay on the fringes. And now mm. you gotta stay way out on the fringes because those, mm. those, those tails have gotten bigger. So the electing, getting elected, has not changed for hundreds of years. You have to go to one of the extremes. You have to elicit either like racism and hatred or like peace, love and, and war, um, which are antithetical, but, but that's yeah. how you get elected. But the great presidents, the ones we think of as great, all govern from the middle. But now you don't, you're mm. not allowed to govern from the middle and you can't talk about the mm. middle. You can't talk. Like, People aren't even allowed, like even within families, to have different views. Yeah. Like, are, are, are you no, this, kidding me? Yeah. I mean, are you It's happened to me, me recently, too. Yeah, I agree. If it's, you espouse, basically, if you say, if you say you're in the middle, what people hear is you are closer to the, oh, then that must mean you agree with this thing that I hate about the other side. That I hate. That I hate. Yeah. That and, I hate. And hate, hate is bad. <laughs> I'm with you. Spaces. Hate is bad. It's bad in everything, yeah. right? I, I look, I'm a pretty serious football fan. I you know, love my Fighting Irish. We sucked this year. But, but I don't hate the people at USC, right? I do call it the University of Spoiled Children, but I, I don't hate them, right? <laughs> and when we play Duke, I don't, I don't hate the Dukies. I, I might dislike rat face, but I respect him as maybe the greatest coach in, in history. Um, mm. But hatred is bad, but man, that's where we are. We are at this, this politicizing and weaponizing of, of negative feelings. And, and you're not allowed to have dialogue and debate in search of truth. You're not, you're not allowed to listen, to understand. You're only to listen, to persuade, to get that person to agree with you. And it's all social media. It's all social media. And and, mm. and it's bad. It's very bad. Yeah. Bad, bad. I agree. All right, anyway, Mark, we've got to hate I know. So, so we gotta we gotta flip it to the positive, which is uh, the the positive is there are 
people who recognize it. And there are people working to, to build up the purple. So that, that's a positive. Um, but more importantly, from a positive note, uh, as bad as all of this stuff is, right, as bad as, you know, the economic numbers look and as the earning stuff, the reality is um, life is, is pretty good. And the fact that we can have this conversation every week and that we can explore big ideas and that we can have, you know, loyal listeners who actually give up their time. I get all these texts all the time. You know, I'm having coffee with you on Saturday morning. I'm like, that's very cool. So that's the good part of media and a little bit of social and, and Twitter and, and all that, the engagement. So that engagement is positive and the formation of communities is positive. So there's a lot of good that comes out of it. But uh we gotta, we gotta, you know, gotta resist the bad. I agree with you. Yeah, I appreciate. Thank you for ending on the positive. Appreciate it, Mark. As always, favorite hour of my week. I'll see you here next time. All right. Have a Cheers. good one, my friend. Talk to you.